Tokyo, Japan, this is Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And this is the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Ms. Deborah Kramer will join us to discuss Smithsonian Ocean. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, the oceans are an integral part of our ecosystem, sustaining most of human life throughout the globe. Yet, despite its paramount importance, human activity is threatening its continued function, and few may have any real deep understanding of the oceans. Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Ms. Deborah Kramer. Ms. Kramer is currently a visiting scholar at MIT's Earth Systems Initiative and the acclaimed author of Great Waters and Atlantic Passage. Her newest work, Smithsonian Ocean, Our Water, Our World, explores the vast history and present circumstances of our oceans for a general audience. Ms. Kramer, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, well, it's certainly our pleasure. I mean, this is really a, a very fascinating book, Smithsonian Ocean. Companion book to newly opened Sand Ocean Hall at the uh, Smithsonian's Natural Museum of Natural History. I wonder if you could maybe tell us a little bit about this hall. Well, this is the largest renovation in over 100 years at the National Museum of Natural History. It's the center hall of the museum that's been renovated, so it's 23,000 square feet of exhibit space, all devoted to the ocean. There's great high-definition video of the sea and all of the animals that live in the sea running all around the hall up in these beautiful high bay screens, and then there are some incredible exhibits underneath. You can see a two specimens of giant squid. Now, these giant squid are very, very rarely seen alive in their own habitat, yet they're huge. Um, they can grow as long as a school bus, and occasionally they're brought up in fishing nets in very, very good condition, and the museum was very fortunate to get two of these, and one of them is there, and it goes almost across the whole width of the hall really exciting to go see this. There's a jaw of an ancestor to a great white shark. This fish was about 49 feet long, and its jaw was seven feet high. And this animal used to swim in the ocean, and there is a jaw there that you can actually look at. This hall is done in partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And I think the sense was that the sea is crucial to our existence. All life on this planet, including ours, depends on the sea. And many people are not really aware of the many ways in which that is true. And I think that the idea here was to present an exhibit that would reach people and tell them that. And this was a perfect place to do that because this is the most heavily visited museum in the country, gets about 5.8 million visitors every year. There is this very large gulf between the scientists who study the ocean and the general public who knows very little about it. Um, the gulf is very, very wide. Federal government commissioned a study a couple of years ago to measure ocean literacy, 
and they looked at public school curriculum, K through 12, in states all across the country. And it was shocking, even to me, to read the results of this study. My state, Massachusetts, has hundreds of miles of coastline. It has the oldest fishing port in the country, Gloucester, where I live, and one of the busiest fishing ports, New Bedford. And its history was related to the sea for several hundred years. There's a big cod that hangs in our legislature, and Massachusetts got an F. And this was true for many, many states. Florida, which is almost surrounded by water, also received an F. The highest grade that any state got was a C. So I think it was timely and important that the museum did this haul now. So I think the public is aware of a lot of the changes that are happening in the ocean right now. There's been, even inland, a great deal of publicity about how our wild fisheries are declining. There's been a lot of publicity, I think, about how global warming is beginning to affect the ocean. Global warming would be a lot worse now if a lot of the carbon dioxide that was emitted to the atmosphere wasn't actually also absorbed by the ocean. The ocean's absorbing about 25 to 33 percent of it. Um, but as that happens, the sea becomes more acidic and the increasing acidity is beginning to dissolve a number of our coral reefs, which is a very significant and dangerous threat to them. Similarly, along the coast, many of our estuaries are having difficulty breathing. Um, the Chesapeake Bay is the nation's largest estuary, and the oxygen disappears along the bottom of the bay in large parts of it every summer. I think many people are aware of these things, but they don't really understand why ultimately this is important. I live every day with declining fisheries, and I see the effects of it in the fish market, but it doesn't affect overall the way I eat. That's why I think this haul is very important and why I was so delighted to be asked to write the book, because I got to spend probably two-thirds of the book, talking about why we need the sea. And I'll just give you right now one small example of that. As you and I are talking, we're both breathing air, and 75% of the American public believes that all the oxygen we breathe comes from trees and shrubs that grow on the land. And in fact, trees and shrubs do provide oxygen, but half of the oxygen is produced by tiny marine organisms that most people can neither see nor name. These organisms really love to live in cold water. So it's really important that they be there and that they be healthy so they can provide air for us to breathe. They absorb CO2 and they give off oxygen. So if their numbers decline, they're going to be absorbing less. Uh, did you find it sort of a challenge trying to translate a lot of the uh, scientific findings regarding the ocean for a uh, general audience? For me, it's always a challenge. And one of the biggest reasons why it's a challenge is that I do not have an advanced degree in biology or physical oceanography or any of the oceanographic sciences. And in many ways, that can be a disadvantage. On the other hand, it's a real advantage because I understand what most people understand. So in order to learn all of the science that I didn't learn in a high school and college, I've had to make up for it now. 
And so I read many, many science papers from journals across the entire spectrum. I was very fortunate in writing this book that there were a team of scientists, both at the Smithsonian and then additional people, experts in every single topic that was covered in the book, and you can tell it's a very broad range of subject matter, who were there to both explain their papers and read what I'd written to make sure that I'd, I guess the term would be translated it properly. So it was fun. I got to meet scientists from all over the world, and because of the great computer connections that are available now, I could, for example, when I was writing the chapter called The Far Ends of Earth, which is about the Arctic and the Antarctic, there's a big section in there on Adelie penguins and emperor penguins and what's happening to them is the ice is shifting. There was a researcher down there who was counting penguins. He'd been doing that for many years. He was down there at the time I was writing the book, and we could converse about this via email as much as I needed. And so I was connected to scientists on pretty much every continent all the time while I was writing the book, and that was very exciting. Uh, I'm curious, what was the uh, most fascinating thing you learned about the oceans during this whole process? Well, there were so many fascinating things, it's really hard to answer that question. But one thing that I learned is that most of the life on this planet is life that we can't see. And we tend to assume that the bigger the animals are, those are the ones that take up the most space. But in fact, the world is really microscopic. I was reading that marine bacteria are really, really tiny. Some of them are a hundredth the width of a human hair. And viruses are even smaller. And they're so small that they could crisscross the Milky Way hundreds of times. And when you think about how much room they take up, I never thought they really took up that much room. But if you compacted them all together, and that's only the ones we know about, they would have as much carbon in them as 75 million blue whales. And that's the largest animal that lives in the sea. So it, the world is really very small. The book actually is, uh, covers maybe the whole gamut of the history of the ocean from the very beginnings to uh, the current situation the ocean is in. Did you find it challenging to actually cover such a wide range of topics? Yes, because I had two and a half years to write the book. Now, I'd had familiarity with a lot of the subject matter from writing Great Waters, but the science has changed even in the last six years, so there was a lot of new science to add. I basically worked... 24 hours a day, seven days a week during the entire process of putting the book together. The gathering the science wasn't really all that hard because I was framing it actually very simply. You're right, it covers four billion years of the history of the earth. But the question is very simple. How does the sea touch us and how do we touch the sea? And everything came out of that. So when I started to think about what are the important things to cover in the subject of how the sea touches us, that is, how we need the sea, everything fell into place pretty easily. And that's the advantage of writing a book. The hall is set up as a fairgrounds. I think that's a good way of describing it, or, or maybe like a website. You go and you can enter it from many places, and you can visit anything that strikes your fancy that you want to learn about. So if you're interested in fossils, you can go right to the fossils. If you're interested in the giant squid, you can go right to the giant squid. If you want to learn about the Arctic, you can go see that first. The book had to have a narrative. It had to have a beginning and an end. So it sweeps through Earth's history, 
but it's always asking the same question. And so in the question, how do we need the sea, I was stunned to learn the numerous ways the sea has contributed to our own evolution. The first cell was put together in the sea, the first plant, the first animal, and then we evolved from a fish that walked out of the water. And it was really exciting learning the different ways in which those things happened. Well, it is really also very fascinating reading about it and looking at all of the amazing pictures that are in the book. Uh, um, now, when you ask about the challenge, <laughs> it was much easier for me, actually, writing the book and reading the research papers and talking to the scientists, because all of us essentially spoke the same language. Their language was in ten-syllable words, and mine wasn't, but we were all talking about the same thing, essentially. When I was almost finished writing it, when the um, Smithsonian Books and HarperCollins told me what their plans were for illustrating it, they said they were going to be taking some of the photography that was in the hall, but that much of the photography they were going to be seeking from the world's finest professional marine photographers. And so they invited me to Virginia, and we had a meeting with the photo editors and the book designer. And I sat at this meeting, and I don't know how to describe this. I was thrilled, and I was horrified, because normally in a book that is this generously and lavishly illustrated, the photographs are chosen, and then a writer comes in to write to the photographs. In this case... The story was pretty much written, and the idea was to find the photographs that illustrated the story. And the photo editors were not used to doing this, so they showed me 300, 400 photographs, which were some of the most beautiful marine photographs I'd ever seen, but I had no idea what they were because there weren't any captions. And we had to sort of start all over again. It was as if every one of us in the room was speaking a different language. It was very challenging because they had very high aesthetic standards. If you look at the book, I mean, the cover is this beautiful shot of a, um, a humpback whale singing off the coast of Maui. When you look at the photograph, it's as if the whale is above you and you're coming in under the whale. And this is a beautiful, inviting photograph to say, come into the sea and see how wonderful it is in here. But it was very, very hard to choose all those photographs because they had very high aesthetic standards, which I'm really glad they stuck to, which I didn't understand. And I had high content standards, which they didn't understand. And it took a lot of meetings at 1, 2, and 3 in the morning to figure out what the photographs were going to be. In the end, I was really, really happy because photographs call to you on an emotional level, I think, and on an aesthetic level, and so there's this beautiful interplay between the prose and the photography that makes a whole, which is, I think, greater than the sum of its parts. And I can say that because I didn't put all those parts together. Well, I think it really came together in a very remarkable way. It, it really draws you into the oceans, especially if you don't have a lot of experience with them. I'm curious, is that really a challenge for most of the people being somewhat landlocked and not really being able to expose to the oceans firsthand? Well, I grew up inland, so I never visited the ocean until I was, I mean, I was a kid, but I think I was older. What I've really, really tried to do in the book is to make it possible for no matter where you live to understand how 
critical the sea is. So even if you're inland, there's so many ways in which the sea is important to you. And this was, this was an interesting challenge also in putting the photographs. I think we were going through the photographs and assembling some of the first parts of the book. And somebody who was reviewing it, there were many people who were reviewing it at different stages, said, gee, I thought this was a book about the ocean, and you have so many pictures of land in here. And one of the reasons for that is to show the connections. So there's a beautiful shot of the Olympic rainforest, for example, up in Washington and Oregon. That's a freshwater forest. But the reason that that rainforest exists is because the water is evaporated off the ocean. And it turns out that most of the rain that falls that fills our lakes and rivers and provides our drinking water and provides water to irrigate our fields originated in the ocean. So that's a very, very clear connection, even if you're living inland. There are many, many connections like that. When you think about driving your car, for example, and the gas that you use to drive the car, those tiny marine plants that put oxygen in the atmosphere also, over millions of years, died and piled up on the seafloor. They were compressed and baked into oil and natural gas and methane. Some of that energy is taken from the sea directly, but some of it is taken from land. But on land, it's pieces of old seafloor that have been pushed up onto the land as an old ocean closed. So whether you're talking about oil fields in Iraq or natural gas fields in Texas, all of this originally comes from the sea. One of the other important themes in the book, of course, is how we are influencing the oceans currently, and uh, you have uh, the term in there, Anthropocene era. Ah, um, Well, that's one of the biggest words in the book. I don't know if you remember in high school, you may have studied the Jurassic Age, the age of the dinosaurs, or the Pleistocene Age, the Ice Ages. There are many scientists now who are beginning to suggest that the current age that we're living in should be called the Anthropocene, that is, the human age. They disagree about when it started, whether it started with the extinction of many, many large animals thousands and thousands of years ago as humans came out of Africa and went through Australia, or whether it started with the dawn of agriculture or whether it started with the invention of the steam engine, which is the beginning of carbon dioxide, heavy-duty carbon dioxide emissions into the atmosphere by humans. They disagree about when it started, but many of them are beginning to think that even if they disagree about when it started, it exists now. And the reason they say this would be the Anthropocene is because humans have become a very powerful force of nature, much more powerful than we have ever imagined, and that kind of mark is going to leave itself on the landscape. And to me, it's, it's kind of an awesome thought that we would become that powerful. And the photography tries to show that a little bit. There's a beautiful David Dubolet photo of a diver in a blue hole off the coast of Palau. So he's very deep in the water, and the 
the water is very blue, and there's the big cave around him, and the diver looks really small. And I think that's how many people feel when they go to the ocean and they stand at the edge of the water and they see that they can't even see to the horizon the water goes so far. And people think that we're very small and we can't have any effect. But in fact, what's happening is that we are confusing immensity with immutability. And we're, we're actually changing, through global warming, for example, we're changing the chemistry of seawater. Um, I think that's an amazing thing for somebody living on land to be able to do. Mm-hmm. Curious if maybe you just have some final words regarding the oceans and the new hall at the Smithsonian. Well, I'm urging everybody to go visit it. There's great high-definition video there. The fossils take you through the entire history of the Earth. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing to be able to see. And if you can't go to the hall, the book is a wonderful way to have an equally powerful experience of what the sea means to us. And I guess I would just end by saying that throughout human history, species have come and gone. Oceans have changed. But we're at a point now where we are the one species that has an amazing ability to think and a capacity for imagination. And once we realize what it is we're doing, we're going to be able to change it. The new book is Smithsonian Ocean, Our Water, Our World. Ms. Kramer, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. It was my pleasure. And you were just listening to Ms. Deborah Kramer discussing Smithsonian Ocean. This is the Grok Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. Heard the singer play How we cheered for more Crowd and rush together Trying to keep warm Still the rain kept pouring Rolling on my ears And I wonder, still I wonder Who'll stop the rain all right, time to play the game. It is the Grokatron 5000. It's our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. And today the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic deep as the ocean or shallow as a pond. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you would classify them as deep as the ocean or shallow as a pond and maybe a little reason why. Uh, Ms. Kramer, are you ready to play the game? I think so. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. Person number one, deep as the ocean, shallow as a pond, uh, Microsoft former chairman Bill Gates. Well, we, we never asked what the difference was between deep as the ocean and shallow as a pond means, but I would say that Bill Gates, if you're thinking about deep thinking, he would have to be deep as the ocean. He's totally changed the way we live our lives now. And I personally feel that computers are a wonderful, wonderful thing. And the kind of access that he has provided to everybody makes my work immensely easier. I couldn't put the most recent, up-to-date science in this book if I did not have electronic access to all the journals. I know that because of the way I wrote Great Waters, which was you know, looking them up in indexes and then getting hard copies of them. And it took weeks sometimes to get journals that I didn't subscribe to. And this is much more work in some ways, but it's opening up an entire world. So I would give him deep as the ocean. Okay, person number two is the real estate mogul Donald Trump. 
Well, this may be unfair, but he's done a lot of development. I'm, I'm most familiar with his buildings in New York City. Again, this is just a personal opinion, but architecturally, I don't really find them that attractive. <laughs> so I would, you know, and, and developers of his wealth and stature could actually put some more thought into the aesthetics of the building. So I guess I would have to give him shallow as a pond. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, number three, then, is Mr. Environmental himself, Al Gore. Well, in my book, he gets deep as the ocean also. <laughs> the first book that he wrote that I read, Earth in the Balance, that book totally changed the way I thought. I loved that book. The reason I'm giving him deep as the ocean, though, is because I feel that global warming is now in the public consciousness, and he was the one who did that through his more recent book and through his slideshow. And I realized that there are some scientists who suggest that that slideshow isn't fully accurate, and in some cases it might not be, but the message that it's bringing is quite accurate, and it's done quite clearly so that everybody can understand it. He certainly opened up a lot of people's eyes, I think. I think he has. And that would be true, wouldn't you agree, whether you live inland or on the coast? Oh, almost certainly, yes. <laughs> All right, well, number four is a pop star, Britney Spears. Well, I don't know her very well, so <laughs> I think I might have to abstain. And I'm too old to be a follower of hers. <laughs> We'll so I'm going that. to abstain. We'll register that as a pass. Okay. <laughs> All right. And finally, number five, it's the uh, new president of the United States, Barack Obama. Well, he's another example, I, I think, of, of somebody who, first of all, in his spoke of the planet in peril. So there's a real recognition from right at the top that we have to change the way we're doing things. But more importantly, he sent a message of hope to everybody across generations, across races across cultures and for a country that's been so divided for so long this is the best thing that could have happened to us so he gets a deep as the ocean in my book also all right <laughs> all right well miss kramer i do want to thank you for sticking around playing the game the grokatron 5000 and of course talking about your new book which of course is smithsonian ocean our water our world thank you again well thank you so much for inviting me it was our pleasure thank you bye and that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Groks, you can email us at groks at hotmail.com. For Grok Science Show, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.